Well, it's a pleasure to be back once again. Thank you for having me. Um, and to share again in your Exodus series, you've moved on quite a, a long way since I was last here. Uh, we were, I think, in chapter 4. Now we're in chapter 15. And last time, I think Derek was speaking to you. It would have been back at the end of September, I think. And Derek spoke to you about that amazing kind of uh, climactic miracle at the Red Sea. The, the, that moment where God reached into the situation of his people saved them mercifully, and at the same time, judged the Egyptians for what they had done. And so, as we, uh, as we start this evening, we could almost start it with that sort of intro that you might get in a TV series in the next episode, last time on Moses and the Exodus. Pharaoh finally releases the Israelites. The Israelites leave. They carry the riches of Egypt with them. Pharaoh then changes his mind, and there'd be a little flashback of that, Pharaoh going, Something like that. And, ev- and chases down his missing slaves, eventually catching them for a showdown on the banks of the Red Sea. And at this point where everything seems lost for Israel, Yahweh works a miracle of epic proportions. Parting the Red Sea saves his people while simultaneously bringing destruction and judgment on the hard-hearted Pharaoh. The most powerful man in the world at the time. And you've, in your, in your last session, covered Exodus 15, which is basically mostly a hymn of praise, of thankfulness to God for what he had done. And it's really interesting because I've got the, the final part of Exodus 15. And Exodus, the final part of Exodus 15 doesn't seem to quite fit. In fact, if this were a TV episode, it, it, would, it, it would take a very odd detour at the end. Um, and... Uh, it actually fits a little bit better with what's coming next in chapter 16. And uh, the story, has, it really changes pace this evening. So let's just read it together. If you, if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Exodus 15 and verse 22. And we're reading through to the end of the chapter. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water, because it was bitter. And that's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling, an instruction for them, and put them to the test. He said, If you listen carefully... To the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes. If you pay attention to his commands and keep all of his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped out near the water. It is quite different, isn't it? It's almost a bit small scale isn't it, compared to what we've seen in, in the past few chapters. And if we just take verse 22 and we, we read into it, we come across a theme that you will find over and over again in the Bible. If we read where, where they're going, we read that they went into the desert of Shur. Now, some translations will actually call that a wilderness rather than a desert. And wilderness might be a better translation of it. Um, it's hard to say. 
But this idea of a wilderness is something that you will come across time and again in the Bible. And it's a really important theme that you need to look for. When it comes to how we read our Bibles, there are certain, certain recurring themes that whenever we see them, they're like a signpost. And we need to stop and think, OK, what's the direction that God is leading me in from here? What am I supposed to understand? And one of those signposts is deserts or wildernesses. And so what I'm not saying here is that this wilderness is a metaphor. It's a real wilderness. These people really wandered around this wilderness. But at the same time, God has shaped history, particularly redemptive history, to tell us something more, that there's a point behind it. There's a point behind the history. And so we come to this theme of the wilderness. And let's be honest, the wilderness is something we're quite used to seeing as a test in our, in our society, isn't it? When we think about people who we consider tough, it's, it's kind of the Bear Grylls, the Ray Mears who wander out into the wilderness. They manage to survive and, and, and sustain themselves for weeks at a time. Um, I met a man at my school who came to do a talk and he'd done the Marathon de Saab. Now, if you're not a runner, just to explain, that's, I think it's seven days running marathons across the Sahara Desert. Now, in my view, you have to be missing a couple of screws to try and do that. Now, I, I run. I like running. But if you said, Matt, you can either do the park run or you can run across the Sahara Desert, park run. Okay, I'd like to think that Sahara Desert, but I'm a realist. I wouldn't. Um, but this idea of the wilderness as a test is something that we're quite familiar with, isn't it? I took our, our kids from school across Dartmoor the other day. And now that's not much of a wilderness because we were no more than two miles from a road. But boy, did it test them. And when you take them, it brings out all kinds of things in their character you never knew were there, like their ability to whinge and moan. <laughs> but the wilderness is a test. When, there's, when, when we're in a position where our comfort is taken away, it's a test. The dictionary, the Cambridge Dictionary, says that actually a wilderness is just an area of land that's not been used to grow crops and it doesn't have roads or towns. And it's especially difficult to live in, usually because it's extremely cold or extremely hot or something like that. So a wilderness can be anywhere. It doesn't all have to look the same. And this, this wilderness that they are in, uh, the wilderness or, or desert of Shur, I don't want you to think Sahara at this point. I want you to think sort of scrubland. It's dry. It, there's not much growing there. That, that's what it looks like, this particular area. And um, so they're taken into this wilderness. And, the, and how people cope with wilderness in the Bible is a really key theme. Because in the Bible, the idea of wilderness is linked to the idea of faith. And wilderness is seen as a test of how well you deal with uncertainty and consequently how authentic your faith is or how strong your faith is, the quality of your faith. And if you just take a look through some different characters in the Bible. In Genesis, we see Abraham wandering in Canaan and down to Egypt and having to trust that actually God has a purpose for his wandering and to still trust God on the way. And he sometimes succeeds and sometimes fails. And then the Israelites, we're in the middle of this one. They seem to wander for a very long time. I won't make the joke about how Moses didn't stop and ask for directions because that's not why. So we're not going to do that. It's not biblical. Um, but we don't often ask for directions. Um, but in Exodus, 
Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, you find the people wandering in the desert and you see their faith tested. And quite often the holes and issues in their faith are revealed by this wandering. When we think of prophets like Elijah, actually about half of the story that we have of Elijah, Elijah spends in wilderness. He spends in a time of uncertainty, having to rely on God for for food and, and sustenance. In a time of famine, you'll find that in 1 Kings 18. And then we see John the Baptist. What does he do to build the faith of the people and to make the way for the Messiah? He takes them out into the wilderness. You can find that in Mark 1 or John 1. And then we have Jesus, and we'll come to this in a bit, but in Matthew chapter 4, where does Jesus go to prove that he's got the faith that we don't have? He goes out into the wilderness. So this theme is big. So when we see wilderness, we should understand. And we should understand that what it is, is it boils down to the idea of what we do in times when we lack or when we feel a lack of what we need. And we need to understand that in those times in our lives, when we feel a lack, a perceived need, that is a test of how authentic our faith in Christ actually is and how strong it is. It's not to say that you're not saved if you fail a test. That's not what it is. But actually, moving towards an authentic faith is part of growing in Christ-likeness. And we need to understand when our faith has failed us. And in those times, we can see really and truly what our faith is made of. And so, point two kind of begs the, the first of our key questions. We're going to ask two questions tonight. The first question is, why does our faith often fail us? That's not a particularly positive question, but it's the best one to ask here, so we're going with it. And the second question we're going to ask is actually a little bit, little bit more uplifting. How is it that God, or how does God, respond to our failures in faith. And they're both answered in this passage. So let's look at, at, the, at the people of Israel, first of all. So we read that they're wandering in this desert, and they've been there three days. And they, in those three days, they don't find any water. Now, it's quite difficult when you're just reading this story in a few verses in Exodus to kind of put yourself in their shoes. But actually, when it comes down to it, if you were wandering a desert or a a wilderness, and you couldn't find any water, you would have a serious and major concern, wouldn't you? It's not actually... What we must not do is sit in judgment over these people here and go, oh, wimps. Because we've got central heating. And we've got a tap. And so... but, But they're in this position where they can't find water. And then... They get to this place that's called, that they call Mara. It's not called Mara when they arrive, but it is by the time they leave. And they find water, and they get ready, and then it's bitter, and they realize that if they drink it, it's going to make them ill, and that's going to be even worse. And if you drink bitter water, and by bitter it means sort of contaminated, it could mean poisonous. We don't know uh, based on what's, what's said in the Hebrew, but it, it's certainly not what you would want to be drinking. If you drink bad water in the desert, that makes life even worse, doesn't it? Because then you get ill and you dehydrate quicker. So they're in a pretty bad spot, humanly speaking. Let's, let's be fair to them. And what's their reaction? Well, they complain. And it is worth saying that actually complaint is another theme in the Bible, isn't it? 
And it is a theme of, it's something we do when we don't trust God enough. Now, that's a big statement, and I say it about myself as well as anybody else, but that is what it is. We, must, we, we mustn't sugarcoat it. Complaint to God comes from a point where we don't trust him enough. And they don't actually trust him enough, and we'll look at that a little bit later on. So they complain to Moses, what are we going to drink? So what is it that causes their faith to fail? Well, there's a couple of things here. First of all, let's, let's look at the timing. Three days. Have you ever heard, you know the song, What a Difference a Day Makes? Yeah, well, if we were to modify it, what, what a difference three days make? Apparently quite a big difference. So three days ago, just three days ago, you know, just longer than a weekend, these folks have been sat on the, by the, beside the Red Sea, having just been brought through the most miraculous crossing that they could possibly have thought of. They have had the biggest evidence of a sovereign God they could possibly get. And three days later, only three, they're complaining and worrying about some water when they've already seen what God can do with water. Three days. Now, as I said, we're not going to sit in judgment over them because the thing is, people don't really change. Actually, we, if we were there, would have probably done the same thing. But three days. They travelled about 33 miles in those three days, so they had walked a bit, and they were thirsty. And in three, just, just three days, their faith had changed. Their faith had weakened. And it just is a warning to us. Be watchful. It doesn't take very long for your faith to be shaken. And actually what's really interesting is when is it shaken? It's after a massive victory. And I think there's a pattern there. That as human beings we can become complacent, particularly after big victories. In the church we can become complacent, particularly after big victories. You know, that's the time that Satan tries to damage us. Because we take our eye off the ball. You know, when we have baptisms at the chapel, we take time to make sure we pray with the kids about the next week. And we take time to counsel them. Next week, after your baptism, is probably going to be a really hard week. Because they can't get complacent. And whether, whether you've just seen someone get saved... You've led someone to Christ, whether somebody's been baptized in your church, whether you've come back from running a great camp, whether you've heard a, a life-changing sermon or you've, or you've given one. It's in those moments that we get complacent, and that's just what they did. Now, the, the Old Testament is often described in terms of these sort of scenarios as either go thou and do likewise or go thou and don't do likewise. This is a go thou and don't do likewise. So that's our first little warning. And the second one comes along with this, perceived need and disappointment. That's shaken them too. Because actually, what is it? First of all, they can't find water. And we know that we need water to live. I was given some advice when I got married uh, and it was this, don't let your wife 
get dehydrated or hungry. Whatever you do, if she is dehydrated or hungry, don't tell her she is. Um, but it's true, isn't it? And I'm the same. We're all the same. That actually when, our, when we need something, it takes our mind off of what we should focus on. And it actually brings out the worst in us. And so these folks genuinely need water. It's a genuine concern. It's not unreasonable that they should want water, is it? They've got common sense. They know they need it. They've grown up in Egypt. But what do they do with it? Well, having seen the miracle, they've ignore, they, they ignore the miracle. Having seen who God is, they ignore who God is. And their reaction is to start to question immediately. You know, Martin Luther, the reformer, said very poignantly, when the supply fails, our faith is soon gone. He kind of didn't mince his words, really. But actually, when, when it comes to what can shake our faith, perceived need is a big one. And Jesus realises this. In Matthew chapter 6, he realises his disciples need to know this truth. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, or what you will eat or drink, or about your body or what you will wear. He realises that there are going to be times that they are tempted to think about those things and to grumble or complain or despair. And Paul lives this out. In Philippians 4, at the very end of the chapter, we we have the very famous, uh, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It's great on Instagram. I say that slightly facetiously because we often miss the three verses before that. And the three verses before that tell us that Paul has learned to be content whether he is in need or whether he has plenty. He's learned both. And he realises that his perceived needs are actually not the most important thing. And if the Israelites had understood that, maybe the situation might have been different. And if we understand that, maybe our faith will be different. Maybe it will be stronger. And we should be watchful in times of perceived need, (coughs) uncertainty. Where's this next thing coming from? Often we have concerns that are genuine. It's what we do with them that's important. You know, I thought you could actually explain this as an equation. Correct concern plus doubt equals complaint. Correct concern plus faith equals a powerful witness. And when we see our brothers and sisters around the world who are struggling for those perceived needs but are acting in faith, boy, is it a testimony when we read it. And moving on, the final thing that I think has shaken them is actually they don't understand who God is. It's really interesting. Who is it that they actually go and complain to? It's not actually God. It's Moses. And so in their head, I don't think they've connected the fact that Moses is simply God's spokesperson. And I don't think they've realized that God is a God of the everyday, not just a God of the Red Sea. And so their faith is placed in the wrong thing. You see, your faith is only going to be as strong as your understanding of the object of of it. You know, they don't appear to have realized that, that Yahweh, who, who parted the Red Sea, is Jehovah Jireh, their provider. They haven't realized who God is. The author Jen Wilkin puts it really nicely. She says that actually faith and love for God are very closely linked. And the heart can't love what the mind doesn't know. 
And they haven't taken the time to look at the experiences that they've seen and really grapple with who this God who saved them is. Authentic faith, it's been said, is not only believing in God, but believing God and all of his promises. And we see examples in scripture of people like David who strengthen themselves in God. And you read the Psalms and you go, actually, David really got who God was. David really understood. And actually, going through difficult times, that's a great time to get to know who God is. I remember preaching a series a couple of years ago um, from Habakkuk, and it reminded me that actually God desires my character far more than my comfort, and that God works in ways that I'm not going to be able to understand. And that truth really has helped me in some difficult times. So how can we avoid this this issue with, with, that they encountered with faith? Seek to understand God's character. Seek to understand who it is that you have faith in. Misplaced faith is going to end badly. And that's what we see in this passage. But then we come on to our next question. And it's a much more uplifting question. The question is, how does God respond to our failures? And so in verse 25, the the story changes. Moses goes to God. He cries out to the Lord and the Lord shows him a piece of wood and he throws it into the water and the water becomes fit to drink. Now, I've read through the commentaries and all the commentators agree there is no way that that piece of wood made the water better. That there was no scientific explanation for why the piece of wood made the water able to drink. There's no fancy thing where it filtered it or it it had a chemical reaction that neutralised everything. There's never been any, any record in human science or history of a block of wood being thrown into a, in, into a pond or a river and making the water taste better. So let's get that out there right now. God does a miracle here. And what we're reminded of is that actually God is using this situation to teach his people. He's not just getting them out of it, but he teaches them several lessons. He teaches them three lessons. The first one is that he's going to supply in spite of their doubt. What does he do? They need water. He makes the water fit to drink. And that is what it is. That actually our God acts not based on what we bargain him to do or or by anything that we can convince him to do, but he acts based on his character. If you read the Psalms, you'll read a couple of common phrases one of them is because of your loving kindness or because of your mercy and David often prays this in the Psalms he doesn't say because I'm in trouble or because I love you always he does occasionally but actually the key thing that he often prays is not is because of your loving kindness God acts based on his character Acts chapter 17 is a, is a sermon of Paul's, and in it, Paul really explains, actually, you guys don't get to, to bargain with God. I don't get to bargain with God. God acts based on who he is. God is loving and kind. Therefore, if we pray to God based on his character, we're praying more intelligently. But likewise, he's showing the Israelites here, actually, he's acting towards them because of who he is that actually he wants to show them that he is a loving and kind and gracious God. 
in the way he supplies. And he shows them that he is the one that can heal. He is the one that heals. And lesson two is actually all about the faith that he desires them to have. What does he do? He gives them something to drink, and then he sets down what we, what we have recorded as ruling and instruction for them. So, guys, now that you've drunk, and now that we're not so dehydrated and crabby, listen to me. And so he says to them, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes... And if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his degrees, decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Now, what this is actually about is faith. Now, it's very easy to, at this point, play the card of, oh, yeah, but I'm saved by faith alone. Quite right. By the way, 501st anniversary of the Reformation on Wednesday. I hear there's something else happening too, but um, I'm le- less bothered about that. Um, and one of the principles that, we're, that our faith, that, that the Protestant faith is based on, is this idea of sola fide, faith alone. And so we read this initially and go, "Oh, how legalistic! If you keep all my laws." But actually, it's about faith. And Paul in Romans one verse five reminds us that faith alone doesn't mean faith only, or rather, faith alone doesn't mean faith that doesn't have any evidence. And so he's asking them, have faith. Do what I'm telling you. Actually, we're told if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And faith is shown in Romans 1.5 as relating to obedience. We don't always succeed. But the whole principle of Christian repentance is that we turn away from our sin away from our idols and to God. And what they're to do is turn away from their previous life and to God. It's faith. And in, with from faith, what, what comes from faith, according to Ephesians? Faith and grace. So what's God not doing? He's not giving them the diseases he brought on the Egyptians. Well, that seems a bit of a strange statement, doesn't it? Why is he not giving them? Why is he even thinking of giving them the diseases he brought on the Egyptians? That's horrible, isn't it? But what's the symbolism of disease in the Bible? And this is, I have to be tread carefully here, because what I'm not saying is disease relates to anything in particular. But disease comes with a curse in Genesis 3. It's the result of sin. It's the result of a fallen world. And when we think about the diseases that the, the Egyptians were afflicted with uh, back a few chapters ago, actually, it's God's judgment on them for their sin. What he's saying is, you have faith, and I won't judge you for your sin. I will treat you better than you deserve. And that's the definition of grace. We have justice, we have mercy, and we have grace. Justice, getting what we deserve. Mercy, not getting what we deserve. And grace, getting far more than we deserve. And so... He's giving them mercy and grace from faith. It's the, and that's, if anyone tells you that the New Testament and the Old Testament don't match up, okay, to be very blunt, they're wrong. Okay? The God of the Old Testament is still the same God as the New Testament. Simple as that. And we see these themes coming through. It's just that we often understand them in relation to Jesus. And when Jesus isn't specifically in the story, we get a bit lost. 
But we see that God desires faith, and he desires faith that's shown, evidence of faith. And the third lesson, which is a lovely lesson, is that God gives rest, and that God prepares a place for his people, and he prepares the way for his people. Because what do they do? They have a drink, they have a little bit of a lesson, and then they move on, and they only, they only go about another six miles to this place called Elim. And they get there, and there are 12 springs, and there are 70 palm trees. Why do you reckon that, they, that some bloke wrote that down? Well, how many tribes of Israel are there? There's 12. And actually, if you look through references to the number of elders there were in Israel, you never guess how many there were. 70. Now, it seems a bit harsh that all the elders get a palm tree, but we won't go on to that. The principle is that God had grown Elim out of the ground in advance for his people. He'd already gone on ahead. So they didn't actually need to complain. If they'd just kept going, they'd have ended up at Elim. And what God is saying to them is, I know your needs. I know how many of you there are. And I'm already going to provide for you. You know, I, I couldn't help reading that but, and, and not thinking of, of John 14 about Christ going and preparing a place for us. And that truth that comes with that. And when I thought of that, I thought Psalm 23. What God is teaching them is that actually he is capable of refreshing them, making them lie down, of having genuine proper rest. You know, our God is the giver of proper rest. And actually, that's a theme through scripture, that it's not all about work. It's about resting and resting in God. And so he reminds them that actually he is the one that can give them the rest that they need. He is the God that goes before them. He is sovereign. And while they're going to go through times of trial in wildernesses, he's going to give them rest. And while we go through times of trial, we still have a God who can give times of rest. And so we move on, because actually most of what I could have said there, I could have actually said quite happily in a synagogue. And I think I shouldn't leave it there, because we're coming to a communion service, a breaking of bread time. And so the question has to be asked in each of these passages, well, how does this point me to Jesus Christ? Now, I mentioned at the start this theme of the wilderness, this theme, this idea that actually the wilderness reveals our faith. And if we're honest, some days we have great victories in faith. Some days we pray, some days we prepare, some days we go into battle well. We have them. And we're used as instruments of God's glory and mercy and grace. And that's brilliant. But let's be honest, we're not going to be able to keep that up. And after a sermon like we've just had, it would be very, very easy to get downhearted next time you had one of those moments. Oh, no, I did that thing that Matt said don't do. Or for me, oh, no, I did that thing that I just told a room full of people not to do. It's kind of worse, actually, if you stood up here. But we fail. And so it's very important that we understand that the whole Bible, the scriptures are one scroll, one story. And what we should see when we see Israel is we should see realistically that they can't meet up to this standard. 
that they should be able to meet up to. They can't do it. We see time and again, and you'll find over the next two chapters, this wilderness reveals all the problems with their faith, far more than it reveals their faith. And we should see Israel and go, they need someone better. And that's where we see Christ. And in Matthew 4, we see Christ spending 40 days in the wilderness, which is symbolic of the 40 years that Israel spent in the, in the wilderness. And we often hear theologians talk about how Christ is the true Israel, the one that did what they should have done. That Christ is actually the person that fulfills everything that they should have been. When Matthew wrote his gospel, the primary readership was Jews. And actually the early Jewish Christians would have immediately gone, hang on, 40 days in the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness. I see what's going on here. And what we actually have to really praise God for is that we have a saviour who was perfect, who is perfect, who lived the perfect life, who was always obedient who always showed faith in his father through his obedience, time and again, regardless of the wilderness, regardless of his own need. And that actually that's the righteousness that's given to us through faith in him. You know, if Christ hadn't done that, his death on the cross wouldn't have mattered, wouldn't have saved us. But actually, that's the encouragement. That's the pick-me-up. When we, start, when we get dehydrated and hungry and do something we shouldn't, that actually Christ has done what we couldn't. That our faith is not doomed on the iceberg of life because of our failings. That with God, when we are part of his people, our failures are not final. Because Christ has lived the life that we should have done. And we'll leave it there. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that Christ is in and every moment of the Bible, every part of your word. And we see him fulfilling what we could not. We see him showing perfect faith in the wilderness where we, your people, cannot. And Lord God, we pray that we would first of all apply the lessons of this passage to our lives. That we would seek to have an authentic faith that glorifies and honors you. But Father God, we also would ask that you would apply this encouragement to our hearts. That in times of failure and difficulty, we would cling to your son all the more. And we would see him as so much more precious than we did before. And Lord, as we come to our time of breaking of bread now, we just ask that you would be glorified. And that we would see Christ as so precious. In Jesus' name, amen.